Today's passage comes from Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. During the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. The word of the Lord. Today, it may be obvious, uh, but we are taking a break from our summer series on the parables of Jesus for a special, a special message on the passage that we just heard read together from Nehemiah chapter 1. This was the Old Testament reading in our CBR Bible reading plan as a church on Monday. And this passage for me has a very special place in my life and in my story. This, this text, Nehemiah 1, is the first passage in the Bible that I've ever preached a sermon on back uh, about 16 years ago. And as I was reading it on Monday, it was coming alive again in my heart in a new way. And I was feeling like this passage is exactly what I need to hear in the time that we are in. And I felt like as I was talking with many of you, as many of you stopped by this week, which was a highlight for me this week, as you were dropping off items for our Skyview uh, outreach and uh, collecting items for the families. I saw many of you, I talked with many of you, and I kept feeling early this week and as the week went on, this is the passage that we need to spend some time with. I know it is for me. There's something here that we all need. The book of Nehemiah is a story of one of the great leaders in all of the Bible. It's the, some, it's the story of a person, Nehemiah, who found his calling right in the middle of a crisis. Now, as we all press on 
as we all enter into the next phase of COVID life, as the calendar is turning to the fall, which normally is a time when all kinds of things restart school and many other things in our lives. This passage has so much for us to help us not only cope for the crisis that we are in, but it can show us how God can lead us into our purpose and our calling in crisis. One of the main things that I've been feeling that I think many of you have been feeling during this time is this sense of, of powerlessness, of, of maybe helplessness. There's so much that we can't control. There's so many things, there's so many questions, so many factors that affect our lives that we can't control. And so we've experienced this collective sense of what can we do? And these are the questions I think many of us are asking. How, how can I help? What is my part in all of this? I heard a stat this week. said 3% of pastors feel successful right now. <laughs> so 97% of pastors feel unsuccessful. And I can resonate with that. Just not knowing what to do. Not even knowing what success is. And I think you could translate these numbers, I would guess, to really any person, any type of person. If we were to ask, do you feel like a successful person right now? Do you feel like a successful Christian, a successful parent, a successful student, a successful worker, so on and so on? I would imagine the percentages would hold true. So this morning, what I hope to do is to offer a very practical message on Nehemiah chapter 1, moving us through four practical steps that I believe that are somewhat sequential for us that provide us with a process we must move through in a crisis, not only to find our bearings, but to find our calling, to find the place that God has for us in which we can impact and serve others. And I think it's important for each of us. In any crisis, two things are true. If we're honest, we are very needy, and maybe that's something we can readily identify with. Here's what I need. I need structure. I need stability. I need some comfort. I need some answers. I need some hope. We are very needy. But at the same time, this is very true for each one of us. We are also needed. We are needy, and we are needed. The people around us need us in new ways. And we have been gifted and wired, and each one of us, no matter how old we are, are called to meet the needs of others. But how do we find that? How do we make sense of that? How do we find that calling in the midst of a crisis? This passage, friends, can help us find that. Well, let's, let's talk about this text now. First, let's get a little bit of context here. What was the crisis? What was the crisis Nehemiah find, found himself in? Well, the events of Nehemiah take place in what's known as the post-exilic period of Israel. So it's after the exile. The post-exilic period was the time after Israel and Jerusalem. Were the people were taken from their homeland and their land and their city. All their spiritual structures were destroyed, completely decimated by the Babylonians. This was the exile. They were taken away from their homeland. So everything they knew, life as normal, was gone. All the spiritual structures and habits 
that strengthened and sustained their faith had to change, and their faith was severely tested. This was the first crisis, which was major. Nehemiah is about the crisis after the crisis, the one on top of this. Because when under, under the Persian Empire, after the Babylonians faded away and the Persians rose to power, a group of Jewish people came back to the land, to the city, to rebuild and to start fresh. And at this point, they'd been trying for almost a hundred years to rebuild, to get back with they knew as normal, to reestablish their spiritual structure, the temple, to rebuild it and to get back some spiritual bearings. And what did they have to show for it? Now let's look at the text in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Nehemiah says, during the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, he says, one of his brothers, Hanani, came from Judah, from this place where they were trying to rebuild for a hundred years, and he said, what's going on there in Jerusalem? What's going on with the remnant that had survived the exile, right? The first crisis. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. Two, two phrases described the crisis. The great trouble and disgrace there in verse 3. Together, these words describe the suffering and the spiritual condition of the people. So, it was a crisis. This is where the book of Nehemiah and really the story and the calling of Nehemiah begins when he heard about this crisis. And after many years of trying to get back to normal, nothing had worked out the way that they had hoped. All their plans seemed to be for naught. They were spiritually drifting. They were losing hope. And they were losing all sight of their calling and why they were called to be in Jerusalem in the first place. They were exposed, they were vulnerable, they were defenseless. There was no wall around them. So they were deeply vulnerable. And all of their weaknesses and all of their struggles to rebuild were exposed for all to see. Now, I almost feel like I don't have to draw the parallels to our current situation now that we are in. They're very obvious, but here are some. We are in a time also of great trouble and adversity. On a personal level, this is true emotionally and mentally. We're struggling with things, some of us on a greater level, with greater trouble than we ever have before. Spiritually, we're experiencing great trouble and adversity. And on a cultural level, if we zoom out economically with this health crisis, and on top of that, dealing with racial, racial tension and crisis as well. This great trouble and adversity. And I also believe, if we are honest, there is some level of disgrace that we are feeling for all of us. Our walls are down. Things are revealed. Things are being exposed. Spiritual weakness and sin. We are vulnerable. With our walls down, we're seeing things about ourselves. Maybe the realities in our lives are coming out in a way that this crisis is revealing and exposing. And who and where we are is showing. And it's not always pretty. God showed Nehemiah 
his calling and his place in this crisis, in this situation. And I think he can do the same for us. So in this message, this is one of these messages where I am preaching right to myself, which is really all of my messages. But I'm right here needing to apply this alongside with you, these four things. So let's look at these four steps. The first one we see from the text is this. We can go to the first slide. Don't avoid grief. Give it the time it needs. I have a a main adult outline, and I have a kid's outline too, kids. So you can fill in the blanks like this. What do we learn, kids? It's okay to be sad. We've all lost a lot. You know, the story begins with Nehemiah far, far away from the heart of the crisis in Jerusalem. He's way off in this place called Susa, the winter palace home of Persian kings. But when he hears the news of the crisis of his kinsmen, likely his own family, he enters into the crisis himself. And what is the first thing that he does? Look at verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. The first thing that Nehemiah did was to sit down and weep. He grieved. This, I believe, is the first step for us in any crisis, especially the one we find ourselves in today, with how big it is and how difficult it is. But there is a big problem with this for us, and that is we just don't know how to grieve. We are not good at it. We have no idea what it means. What did Nehemiah do? We say he sat down and he cried. What will that do? What good is that? As a culture, we really have no real place. We have no models for grief. And as the church, by and large, we've lost this clear teaching in the Bible. We have very few models. But Nehemiah gives us one. You know, back in March, for me at least, I was hearing a good bit of talk on grief. We were talking a bit about that as a church. And there was a call for us to acknowledge the losses that we have all experienced, the pain of it all. But it seems to me, at least, that we think we've moved on, we've moved beyond that. And it's as if we've said the global pandemic, the large-scale losses, all the uncertainty, like, let's move on past that. Even, even back in March, it was kind of like this, like, let's give some time for grief, maybe three or four weeks, and then let's see God work in mighty ways and bring revival and renewal and that sort of thing. Do you know, and this struck me again this week, how long Nehemiah grieved here? We know because he gives us the dates in 1-1 and then in 2-1. He grieved for about four to five months. He grieved for four to five months before he took any action. And we may, we may ask, what do five months of grieving, what will that do? And the reality is, Scripture tells us that grieving will connect us to God. It will connect us to the heart of God and the compassion of God. The very first time grieving is mentioned in the Bible is in the book of Genesis, the first book, in Genesis 6-6. This is prior to the flood. God looked down at humanity. He saw the violence. He saw the fighting. He saw the conflict. And Genesis 6-6 says he was deeply grieved. Jesus tells us, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, we've been in this pandemic COVID life for about four to five months. And what has happened over these four to five months 
is that every single one of us has lost a lot. There's been canceled plans. There's been dreams we've had. Lost. Jobs have been lost. Life as we know it has been lost, and some of us have lost loved ones, which has been even harder in a pandemic. Alongside that, we have lost many of our usual resources to cope. What do we do? What do we do? Well, one thing we, we know from this text is that we can't skip over or shorten the process of grieving, the time to grieve. Grieving is a holy act of obedience, a necessary act to move into a crisis, to find our bearings, and then to move out to others with compassion. I think there's a practical um, help here. It's maybe not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. In his grieving, Nehemiah, Nehemiah says also fasted. In the Bible, fasting and grieving are often seen together. And I believe this is something we and I, <laughs> I put myself here as the foremost, have lost but need to recover in order to learn how to grieve because we're, we're so not good at it. Let me explain. Because if you're like me, your reaction might be fast during this time now, but we've already been subjected to so much involuntary fasting, right? We've lost so much. We can't gather in person for worship. It's a kind of fasting. We can't gather with friends for celebration, which is a kind of fasting. We can't see people's faces as they're behind masks. We can't eat out and maybe... We, we're cutting back finances and we're, we're pulling back. There's so much that we feel like we're already fasting from. You know, on Thursday, Amelia and I, we tried to go out uh, for a date night. We try to do it once a week, just get out of the home, spend time together. We went out and it was so depressing because everything was closed. Everything we wanted to go to was shut down. <laughs> so we went back home and just drank tea together. There's so much we've lost, and you're saying fast? Yes, I'm saying fast. One of the main ways we avoid grief is through escape and or excess. In our culture, there are plenty of ways for us to escape or to indulge ourselves in excess. We can escape into our devices and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. We can escape into nothing that in excess with our eating and drinking, it's the full scale of gamut from distraction to addiction. All of these, friends, all of these can be ways that we avoid our grief. And so, I would appeal to you, if you're having a hard time grieving, to consider fasting. It could be from any of the ways that you look to escape, any of the ways you find yourself turning to excess to cope. Alcohol, internet, food, TV are a few examples. You know, Nehemiah, he grieved with fasting, but then he prayed. That's the most of the text in chapter 1. It wasn't just any prayer in general. All prayer is good in crisis, but we are given the specific prayer and the words he prayed that led him into his calling to eventually go to Jerusalem, into the crisis, and to help. And his prayer is a model for us in how to pray in crisis. So first, he grieved. He took the necessary time to grieve, and then he prayed. Let's look at his prayer. I've got two things I want to point out about this prayer. Second point, 
His prayer shows us we should not resort to finger pointing, but confess our sins. It's not a typo, not confess your sins, confess our sins. You know, crisis, as I've said, has it, it, any crisis has a revealing and exposing effect. It, it just shows us what's there. It takes away all the busyness, all the props, and it shows us and it reveals us and exposes us for where we are. So a big crisis, a mega crisis like we're in, has a mega revealing effect. Crisis can bring out the best in people, but also it can show us the worst about ourselves and about other people, about our culture, wherever, whatever culture we live in. It can reveal things that were there all along, but now come to light because of the crisis. So a major temptation in any crisis for people who see all that is being revealed about others' sins and faults and failures and issues is to attack and blame and denounce what is being revealed in others. This feels much better to us, right, than to grieve. This feels much better to us than to deal with what God is showing us about ourselves. The story is told of an author, G.K. Chesterton, who responded to a newspaper article asking the question, what is wrong with the world? We welcome your responses. It's said that he replied with this simple letter, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. The most important words in Nehemiah's prayer, the words that changed him the most and led him to find his calling in the midst of this crisis, were the words, I, me, in mine. You can find those in verses 6 and 7 in his prayer. He says, I confess the sins that we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned, and we have acted corruptly and not obeyed. Now, Nehemiah wasn't even there. He wasn't a part of what was happening in Jerusalem. He could have said, what's going on with them? What is the problem? How come they haven't got it together yet? As we pass through our crisis, as we pass through what we could consider multiple crises, and maybe more on the horizon, the finger-pointing, the attacking, and the blaming, it's at an all-time high. It's all around us. My friends, the way of Jesus does not allow us to join in on this. Jesus did not say, blessed are the angry. Blessed are the finger-pointers. Blessed are those who are able to see the sin in others know. He said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, this urge, the current is so strong to finger point. The only way I believe we can prevent it is through prayer like this. Let this sink in for a moment. Why is Nehemiah confessing somebody else's sin? Does that make sense? As with grieving, our American culture doesn't have a category for this. This corporate responsibility and corporate confession. But the clear biblical idea, the clear biblical teaching, is that there is a place for corporate confession and corporate responsibility. You know, corporate confession and responsibility is embedded in the us that Jesus gave us to pray 
in the prayer that he taught us, the Lord's Prayer, especially the part where he said, forgive us our sins, not just forgive me. For example, in discussions regarding the sin of racism, I've heard people say, I'm not going to confess the sins of other people, of other people who are already dead. I never personally committed those sins. But my response is whether it's racism or greed or whether it's uh, pride, any sins, if this is your view, you can't pray the Lord's Prayer, this prayer that Jesus gave us to pray. Because it is a plural, it is a corporate prayer where he says, pray, forgive us. In the Bible, there is a solidarity and a unity we have with the church, even with those who have gone before us, as well as, at some level, the entire human race. We don't stand outside the church. We don't stand outside even our history. We don't stand outside humanity as observers. We are all wrapped up in the word us. When the walls come down in crisis, we see the sins of others. And Nehemiah shows us what to do when we see that. I'd like to share a quote from, G uh, not from, from Frederick Bruner, or Buechner. Put that up. He says, to confess... Go, go forward one. There we go. To confess your sins to God is not to tell him anything he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the Golden Gate Bridge. I think what Nehemiah shows us here is not only does confession become the Golden Gate Bridge from us to God, but it can be the Golden Gate Bridge that we pray on behalf of others that they might find the bridge back to God and all the sins and failures and things that are being revealed about them. Third point, third step. Don't resort or don't give in to despair. <laughs> Pray for more than help. This is the second piece of Nehemiah's prayer. Praying for help is, is good and necessary. And sometimes it's all we can do is to say help, but more is needed. In Nehemiah's prayer, we see he prays, he begins his prayer by praying who God is. Lord, you're the God of the heavens, a great and awesome God, awe-inspiring God who keeps his covenant. And he prays the things that God has done. Remember what you told Moses. And he, he recites and prays through the words of Scripture, the things that God has said. Now the question I want you to consider is, doesn't God know who he is and what he said? and what he's done? And of course the answer is yes. But here, Nehemiah, in his prayer before God, he takes time praying who God is, what God has said and done. Not for the sake of God, for the sake of himself. What you have here actually is, is a great model prayer for something that we often use at Trinity, which is the Acts model of prayer, A-C-T-S which is a way that we ensure that our relationship with God and our prayers before God are well-rounded and holistic. When we leave out the A and the T, the adoration, and only have confession or supplication, the C and the S, and we leave out the A and the T, adoration and thanksgiving, we're praying, I'm sorry, and we're praying, help, confess, supplication. 
but we need to bolster those prayers and frame those prayers with adoration and thanksgiving. Often what we find ourselves doing in a crisis is we find ourselves listening to ourselves. <laughs> we find ourselves just hearing the worries, the fears. We find ourselves processing uh, all the things that are going on that we see all around us. And we're just listening to ourselves. But prayer is how we get a hold of ourselves and we talk to ourselves, and not just allow ourselves to talk to us. That's what Nehemiah is doing here in this prayer. And it keeps him from despair. framework and the big picture that hasn't changed no matter what the crisis, what God has said, and what God has done. These things can get us to find our bearings, to stand up when we're tempted to despair and give up. Could I have that slide point three one more time? The kids outline is another way that we could think about this. The third step in finding our calling in crisis is don't give up even when we feel like it. God hasn't and will never give up on you. Now crisis, it can lead us to this, this kind of praying that brings us to a place where we find comfort and strength. And it can prepare us and shape us into people who give others strength and comfort as they're going through a crisis too. And that's what happened here for Nehemiah. The last step. Last point, don't retreat into safety, step into need. In this place of humility, lament, and remembrance, the call of God came into Nehemiah's life. You see at the end of verse 11, there's this last sentence where he says, At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Now there's a lot packed into those words. What does that mean to be the king's cupbearer? The cupbearer at this time was a place of great prestige. Of comfort and power. It was the person who uh, their official duty was to take the cup that was given to the king and to drink it to make sure there wasn't any poison in it. Somebody wasn't trying to kill the king. So it had to be somebody extremely trustworthy. And they became entrusted as a close advisor to the king. This was about as high up as any Jewish person could imagine themselves rising in a foreign empire, in the Persian Empire. So if Nehemiah was to help in any way in this crisis, if he was to enter into it, he would have to give all that up to identify with his people, moving from safety into danger, potentially losing all that he had gained. Now verse 11 is an interesting way that he puts it, because it's just a statement of fact. Uh, at the time, I was the cupbearer to the king. That's just a statement of fact. But everything about how he saw himself, everything about this fact, changed after Nehemiah had spent time grieving, praying with confession, and praying to remind himself who God is and what he said and what he's done. This fact took on a whole new meaning. Nehemiah was able to see everything about who I am, about what I have, about where I am. It's not just for me. It's a part of the calling that God has given me to serve and to bless others. Hardship and crisis has a way, doesn't it, of, of turning us sometimes inward and isolating ourselves and just getting through. It can actually harden us 
if we're not careful. But it can also turn us outward and soften us and to help to move us to serve others who are hurting too. Many of us in this time, maybe out of necessity, were rushed into action and now we're burned out and we feel like we're toast, we're struggling to move ahead. And many of us are still trying to cope by trying to say something about everything going on, trying to do everything, trying to be everything to solve the world's problems. Some, some of us are stuck. Some of us are ready to check out. Some of us are just ready to think about matters of faith and calling when things return back to normal. Now, Nehemiah, he had the option here. He could have remained distant and safe and comfortable, sequestered in the palace and in his role and lived a nice life. He could have given up on the cause and the mission. But the grieving, fasting, praying, not retreating, Nehemiah's calling became clear. You see the process. His grieving brought him great compassion for the needs of others, their trouble and their disgrace. His confession brought him great humility to not out, stand outside and point fingers at others. And his prayers of adoration and thanksgiving brought him great confidence, realizing that it wasn't up to him, but that God could use him if he were to step out, out of his comfort and into need. He's a model for us, how we can find our calling in times of crisis. The challenge is, in any crisis, really at any time, but especially in crisis, to step out into a place of need is to potentially make it even harder on us. It's to potentially put us in a place where we feel like more is being asked of us than we have to give. Where do we find the strength to do that? Well, this is where I want to close. Nehemiah should be read and, and must be read on two levels. There's a secondary and a primary level. And it all goes back to how the people who read this book, who it was written to, were meant to read it. The secondary level, I spent a lot of time on the secondary level, which is the level of Nehemiah is a model of leadership for us to follow. And as we read the book of Nehemiah, we can be a person of influence and leadership like him. God has something to teach us about that. But there is a primary level. And we're to read the book of Nehemiah at this level as well. The primary application of the person reading this book would have been this. We need another Nehemiah. As you read the story, as it goes on, Nehemiah brought many people into their place, into their calling. They were reinvigorated. They were renewed. They eventually rebuilt the wall and restored the safety to the city. They did all kinds of things together, but only after a man like Nehemiah showed up and they were able to follow him. And that's the primary application of the book. God, send us another Nehemiah. I'm having a hard time finding my place in this crisis. I'm having a hard time with, with what's being revealed in this crisis. I am feeling stuck and not even able to grieve. Show us a Nehemiah, bring us a Nehemiah to lead us into that and I will follow him. When read in light of the whole Bible, the book of Nehemiah points us to another leader. This chapter points us to another leader, one who would leave a palace of far greater glory and comfort to enter into an even greater crisis to serve us. 
a leader who was completely removed from our sin, who was innocent, yet was willing to identify with it, even to the point of taking it on and bearing it with us. A leader who was so moved by our crisis, by our need, who was moved to great tears of compassion on our behalf, who grieved with us and for us, a man who was called a man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief. A person who would never stop praying for us. Of course, I'm speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says, During his earthly life, Jesus offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. You see, this story, the story of these four steps to grieve, to enter into the sins of others, to trust in the great character and the promises of God, and to step out of our comfort and into need, that is the story of the gospel, friends. That is the story of our great leader, the greater Nehemiah, Jesus, who has done these four things for us, saving us out of the crisis of a broken world and our own sin and our own selfishness. And as we lean into him, as we follow him through these four steps in this process, what we find is not only is he an all-sufficient Savior, but he has a place for you. He has a place for me. He wants us to find our calling in this crisis. He'll give us the strength and the courage to step out not everywhere, not to everyone, not into everything, but to where he has called us to lean in. As we enter into this next phase, this next season, the fall season of 2020, may God give you the strength and the courage. May he give you the clarity. And may he show you where he has called you to serve, to love. We ask all these things, and we lean into the name of Jesus in prayer for this, which we need to close this sermon doing just that. So would you join me in this prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you that your heart is for us and with us, whatever we are facing, that you are not a Savior who is cold and distant, but you are a Savior who grieves with and for us. Thank you that you are praying even on our behalf, for the things that are being revealed about our lives in this time. You're not surprised by them. And so let us bring them to you. Help us remember, Jesus, all of who you are, all of who you, what you've done for us and what you've said. And help us bank our lives on that. And in this, give us a new sense, a fresh sense, a clear vision for how you're calling us to love and to serve others. We pray it in your powerful name. Amen.